Switching from that to talk a little bit about the history of the church this morning, just to kind of do a little bit of recap so that everybody knows where we are. On week one, so this was a number of weeks ago when I was here, I talked about a way to kind of think about 2,000 years of church history in a way that I have found to be helpful, and that's to think about the history of the church visualizing a building. And in this building, and in fact, that's a metaphor that the New Testament itself uses to refer to the church as a building, so it's a biblical metaphor. But if we expand that metaphor out to encompass church history, we might think of this building built on the foundation of Christ and the apostles, this building having four floors, and each of these floors having five rooms. Each floor represents an epoch in church history, an epic in church history, the first floor being the age of the church fathers, what we would call the patristic age, the second floor being the early Middle Ages, the third floor being the high and late Middle Ages, and then the fourth floor being the post-Reformation modern era. And each of those floors represents... 500 years of church history. So 2,000 years, four floors, 500 years each. And on each floor of our building, we have five rooms, and each of the rooms represents a century. So the first room on the first floor is the first century. And my goal in our time together, as we talk about the history of the church, is for us to go room by room, floor by floor, and to actually meet the people whom God used at that time in that place, and then find out what it was that was happening at that time that they were reacting to. And this morning, we are, just to kind of orient ourselves, we are on floor one, and we're going to be in the second and third rooms, the second and third century of the first floor of church history. Every once in a while, I find myself at an outlet mall, and that's because I love my wife, and my wife loves shopping, and so that's just how it works. And when you go to, whether it's an outlet mall or a real mall, real malls are kind of starting to become passe, but you find yourself at the mall, the first thing that I always would look for is the directory. Because I need to know where the food court is. (laughs) But no, because we need to find out where we are in relationship to all of the stores that comprise this mall. And, And when you find that directory, the first thing that you always look for, at least I always look for, is the sticker that says, you are here. So if you have your workbook, actually, I think it's page 19, has that sort of map of church history presented as a building, but even if you don't have the workbook, it's no problem. If if church history is a building, we're on the first floor in the second and third rooms this morning. That's where the You Are Here sticker goes in terms of where we're at. And Lord willing, in two weeks, I'll be back and we'll move into the fourth and fifth room on that first floor as we gradually make our way all the way through 20 different centuries in the history of the church. All right, well, what we're talking about this morning is really 
fits under the theme of contending for the faith, contending earnestly for the faith. We're going to talk about apologetics and polemics this morning, apologetics and polemics. And I'll explain what I mean by those two terms in just a moment. But when we look at the New Testament, we see that as Christians, we are going to face hostility and hatred from the world around us. And we recognize that reality. In fact, our Lord himself said on the night before his crucifixion, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before you. And so for us to be faithful followers of the Lord Jesus means that we are going to encounter those who view us with hostility. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, and this is when Paul was in a dungeon in Rome waiting to be executed by the Romans, he said, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So antagonism from the world is something that is to be expected. It is something that is to be anticipated. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, a well-known section of Scripture, he says, Do not fear their intimidation, do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to give a defense or to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an answer or an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And in fact, right there in 1 Peter 3.15, when Peter says that we are to be always ready to make a defense, that Greek word for defense is the word apologia, from which we get the word apologetics. Apologetics is to make a defense of the Christian faith. So this morning, we're going to be talking about two sort of seminary-sounding terms. One of them is apologetics, which is that idea of making a defense, being able to give a reasoned and biblical answer for the hope that is in you to anyone who asks. And then the other is polemics. So apologetics comes from apologia, the Greek word meaning defense. Polemics comes from a Greek word that means to make war. Polemics is to uh, be on the offensive in terms of going and doing battle for the faith. Of course, we mean that metaphorically. It is to contend earnestly for the truth. And the way that this works itself out primarily is that apologetics generally tends to be making a defense when the world outside the church attacks. Polemics is about guarding and protecting and contending earnestly for the faith within the context of the church when false teachers arise and those within the church begin to teach error. So apologetics is more about making a defense to the outside world, and polemics is more about contending for the faith within the context of the church itself. And the people that we're going to meet this morning in the second and third century of the history of the church, their primary contribution in terms of the writings that have survived from them, the writings that were left, that have come down to us, their primary contribution was in these two areas. They were defending the faith from the pagan Romans on the outside, and they were contending earnestly for the faith 
from false teachers inside the church. And what I think is really compelling about this and what makes this practical for us today is that we still have a responsibility as believers to be always ready to make a defense and also to contend earnestly for the faith. We are called to be apologists and we are called to be those who are faithful to defend and to teach sound doctrine. And so in that sense, these individuals serve as a model for us and I hope that you're encouraged in these two areas even as we talk about these things this morning. In the second century, really in the second and third centuries, Christianity was illegal within the Roman Empire, and Christians were accused of a number of different things by the pagan Roman society. And I want to explain this a little bit as we go through four primary accusations that were made against Christians by their pagan Roman neighbors. One of those was that Christians were accused of being atheists, which is something that maybe sounds surprising to us today because we think of Christianity, rightly so, as being diametrically opposed to atheism, and it is. But within the context of the ancient Roman world, the the Romans worshipped a pantheon of Greco-Roman deities. There were gods for every different thing in life, Certain gods controlled the weather, certain gods controlled your health. This idea of all of this sort of this pantheon of Roman gods. The Christians came along and they said, none of those gods are actually God. In fact, those gods are nothing more than demonic figments of your imagination. So we are wiping out the entire pantheon of Greco-Roman deities. And instead, we are going to worship the one true and living God. Well, from the Roman perspective, the fact that the Christians were getting rid of all of their gods meant that the Romans accused the Christians of being atheists. And you can even see an example of this in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter, well, in Acts 17, the apostles are accused of turning the world upside down. And then in Acts 19 in Ephesus, the silversmiths were losing money because no one was purchasing idols of Diana anymore. Uh, Ishtar, the, the god of Ephesus, the goddess of Ephesus. No one was buying the idols anymore, and so it was hurting the economy of idol making. And as a result of all of that, the silversmiths led a riot in Ephesus that resulted in the persecution of the Christians. That same thing was happening as this continued. Christianity, as it spread, As people were being saved and coming to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus, they stopped worshiping, and rightly so, they stopped worshiping that pantheon of Greco-Roman deities, and as a result, Roman society accused Christians of being atheists. Okay, number two, they were accused of insurrection. Uh, This is because the Christians refused to uh, burn incense or pray to or even swear an oath of devotion to the Roman emperor. So in ancient Rome, emperor worship was a major factor. 
Uh, in the West, they worshiped the emperor himself. In the East, they worshiped kind of the spirit of the emperor, but it, the manifestation of it looked the same. Romans were expected to swear allegiance in a worshipful slash devotional way to Caesar because Caesar was considered divine. In fact, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, where the apostle Paul says, if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is probably against a backdrop in which Roman uh, citizens had been taught from very young age that they were to confess Caesar as Lord. And Paul says, no, 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 no. We don't confess Caesar as Lord. <clears throat> Excuse me. We don't confess Caesar as Lord. We confess Jesus as Lord. So when the Christians refused to give offerings of worship to Caesar, their loyalty to the Roman Empire was suspected as being incomplete, and so they were accused of being insurrectionists. In addition to that, they were accused of immorality. As the pagan Roman world viewed the church with suspicion, Christians were forced to meet in secret, and as they met in secret, rumors about what happened in their secret meetings began to fuel speculation on the part of the hostile society around them. Uh, Christians used affectionate terms for one another. They talked about loving one another and even having agape feasts, love feasts. They talked in familial terms to one another. This, in the minds of unconverted, uh, unsanctified pagan Roman imaginations, fueled rumors about sexual immorality taking place in the church at the Christian secret meetings. And then finally, they were accused of cannibalism. And this, again, was a misunderstanding, a gross misunderstanding of what was happening in church services. But every week when the church would gather, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. And of course, Jesus speaking metaphorically, when he instituted his supper, he said, this is my body and this is my blood. And when the Romans heard that, they thought, wow, those Christians are actually eating human flesh and drinking human blood. Okay, so you look at that list and you can appreciate, I think, why Roman society would view Christianity with suspicion if these things were true, you wouldn't want these kinds of people to be part of your society. People who deny God, who deny the emperor, who are sexually immoral, who participate in cannibalism, you wouldn't want them to be part of your society. Obviously, these accusations were all false. The allegations were all untrue. But you can begin to understand why Rome persecuted Christians with such hostility because these are the rumors that were circulating about what was happening in the secret meetings of the Christians. In response to this, you had a group of Christian leaders who wrote defenses of Christianity and their defenses were primarily aimed 
at correcting these false allegations and accusations. In other words, no, we are not atheists. We worship the true and living God. No, we are not insurrectionists. In fact, we believe that Caesar was appointed by God and our scriptures tell us to submit to Caesar. No, we are not sexually immoral. In fact, the very opposite. The ethics of Christianity far surpass the ethics of any ancient pagan Roman religion. And in fact, the ancient Roman deities exemplify sexual immorality all the time. And no, we are not cannibals. The institution of the Lord's Supper is a memorial feast in which by eating and drinking these things, we remember the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just as he said, do these things in remembrance of me. So these allegations were completely unfounded and completely false. And yet, it required some of these second-century apologists to stand up and actually write open letters to the Roman government, telling the Roman government, we are not who you think we are. You should not be persecuting us. We are actually the most loyal citizens in the Roman Empire, the most morally pure, and those who actually worship and serve the true and living God. I think I mentioned this in a, um, I think it was probably two weeks ago or three weeks ago when I was here last. We were talking about uh, Polycarp of Smyrna. Polycarp was killed and he was, uh, if you remember, he was killed in Smyrna. He was brought before this giant arena of spectators who were shouting for his death. And one of the things that they said about him was that Polycarp is the father of the Christians and the overthrower of our gods. So they were accusing Polycarp of that first thing on our list there of being against the gods. And the reason the Romans took that in particular so seriously is because they associated everything in nature with some pagan deity. And so if something in nature went wrong, they assumed that the gods were angry with them. And one of the individuals we'll meet a little bit later today named Tertullian, he wrote a defense in which he actually made the case like, hey, if there's ever a natural disaster that takes place, you guys blame the Christians because you think that the Christian gospel is making the Roman deities upset because not as many people are worshiping them anymore. And that's why a natural disaster is occurring. So he talked about the river Tiber, but he said, if the river dries up, you blame the Christians. If the river floods, you blame the Christians. Either way, you blame the Christians. And so adding to all of this was anytime anything bad happened, pagan Romans got mad at the Christians and the persecution intensified. Persecution in the Roman Empire lasted pretty much from Nero He was A.D. 64 when that fire broke out in Rome that resulted in persecution, all the way until a guy named Diocletian, whose reign ended around the year 305 or 306. So from about 65 to 305, the Roman Empire was actively persecuting the church. Now, there were seasons where that persecution was much more intense, and often that persecution was regional, 
But when you read, for example, in Fox's Book of Martyrs about all of the early Christians who were killed during that period, the reason why they were hated so much by the Roman government is because they were accused of these kinds of things. All right, in response to that, you have the apologists. And again, apologist from that Greek word apologia, that means to make a defense. Now, we get our English word apology from that same Greek root. So when, you know, you make an apology or you apologize, but of course, the way we use that term, it means to say you're sorry for something, right? Like, oh, I'm so sorry, I apologize. But in its original context, apologia actually referred to a formal legal defense in a court of law. So to make a defense, to give an apology in the original sense of that term, meant to defend yourself in court. And I say that because some of the works of these apologists are called apologies, and I don't want you to think that they were running around saying they were sorry for being Christians. That's not at all what was happening. They were making a defense of the faith. I just want to talk about one of these apologists. He's the foremost of the second century apologists, and that is Justin Martyr. Martyr is not his last name. Martyr is what happened to him. But uh, Justin, actually born in what today is the modern state of Israel, he was born in near Samaria uh, or in Samaria, not far from where the Samaritan woman met with Jesus at the well in John chapter 4. He was a Roman by birth, And we don't know when he was born, probably around the year 100. We know when he died. He died in 165 because he was martyred in Rome. I'll just tell you a little bit about him. Um, As a young man, he was given a good Roman education. That Roman education led him into the study of philosophy. He loved philosophy, and especially he loved Platonism. So he was engrossed in uh, Platonic philosophy, which we don't have time this morning to go in depth on all that that means. But one day, as he was walking by the seashore, he was actually contemplating life and the meaning of life and all the things that philosophers like to spend their time thinking about. And he met an old man on the shore. And we don't know who this old man was. We just know about the testimony of this old man from Justin's testimony. And as they engaged in conversation, this old man showed him the weakness of Greek philosophy and helped him understand that the true philosophy, the true logos, the true knowledge and wisdom of God is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Justin, through that conversation, was converted, and he spent the rest of his life articulating, defending, proclaiming, preaching the true philosophy, that of the knowledge of Jesus. And he, in fact, was one who often would use John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He would use John 1 and the idea that Jesus is the divine Logos as a way to witness and evangelize to other Greek and Roman philosophers who 
uh, we're interested in talking about those things. Just a few highlights from Justin. Well, actually, before I talk about some of those things, I do want to read this quote from him. Um, Around the year 150, Justin wrote his first apology, his first defense. He addressed it to the Roman Senate, to the Roman emperor. So it would be kind of like an open letter that someone today might write to our Congress or to our president. So if you imagine somebody today putting on the internet a letter to President Biden, did President Biden ever read it? Did did the Roman Senate ever read this? We don't know, but this was one Christian's effort to defend the truth about Christianity from all of those false allegations and attacks. And in that first apology, Justin actually describes an ancient church service. And I think this is really amazing to see, in fact, this is probably the oldest account of a church service that we have outside of the New Testament, right? So this is written about 50 years after the death of the Apostle John in the middle of the second century. And I think it's really interesting to ask the question, what was church like in the middle of the second century 50 years after the Apostles died? Well, Justin is going to describe this, and remember, he's writing this for a pagan Roman audience. So he's going to explain what happens in the secret meetings of the Christians, because that was what was causing confusion and suspicion. All right. On the day called Sunday, there is a gathering together in the same place of all who live in a given city or rural district... The memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then when the reader ceases, the president, the one presiding over the meeting, which would have been the pastor, in a discourse admonishes and urges the imitation of these good things. And next we all rise together and send up prayers. Okay, so let's just stop there for a second. What is happening in this ancient church service? Well, number one, They gather on Sunday, the first day of the week. Number two, when they gather together, they spend time hearing the reading of the memoirs of the apostles. What's that? The New Testament. Now, we're still at a time when the formal recognition of the canon is in process, but what I want you to note here is that the early church recognized the writings of the apostles as being Scripture. So, the New Testament writings, the memoirs of the apostles, or the writings of the prophets. What's that? That's the Old Testament. So when they gather together, they hear the preaching or the reading of the Word of God. After the reading of the Word of God takes place, then the pastor, the one presiding over the meeting, he gives a discourse. Well, what's that? That's a sermon. (laughs) That's a sermon. And The sermon is going to explain what they've just heard, and it's going to apply what they've just heard to how they live so that they might imitate the good things that they've read in the scriptures. And then after the sermon, everybody engages or participates in congregational prayer. Okay, I want to keep going here. When we cease from our prayer, bread is presented and wine mixed with water. The pastor or the president in the same manner sends up prayers and thanksgiving according to his ability 
And the people sing out their assent, saying the Amen. A distribution and participation of the elements for which thanks have been given is made to each person, and to those who are not present, they are sent by the deacons. So, in other words, after the sermon and after a congregational prayer, the next thing that happens in this weekly gathering is the celebration of the Lord's table. And isn't it interesting? The deacons are the ones who are involved in distributing the elements for communion. And if there's anyone not present, then they take these elements to those who are homebound. All right. Those who have means, so what happens next? Those who have means and are willing, each according to his own choice, gives what he wills, and what is collected is deposited with the pastor. He provides for the orphans and widows, those who are in need on account of sickness or some other cause, those who are in bonds, strangers who are sojourning, and in a word, he becomes the protector of all who are in need. I think this is so interesting. Here's the oldest account of an ancient church service that we have outside of the New Testament, and it includes an offering. So they take an offering in the church in order to meet the needs of those who are part of the body. And goes on, but Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world and Jesus Christ our Savior on the same day rose from the dead, for he was crucified on the day before that of Saturn, and on the day after that of Saturn, which is the day of the sun, having appeared to his apostles and disciples, he taught them these things, which we have submitted to you also for your consideration. So I just think that's really encouraging. Again, church history is not our authority. Scripture is our authority. But how encouraging is it to know that the things we do on a regular basis as part of our worship service here at Grace Church in the 21st century are the same things that were characterizing the ancient church all the way back in the year 150. The reading of Scripture, gathering on Sunday, the reading of Scripture, a sermon that explains the Scripture and encourages us to live accordingly, corporate prayer, the regular observance of the Lord's table, an offering that goes to care for the needs of the saints, and all of it done in accordance with Christ's resurrection because he rose on the first day of the week. That's why we gather on that day. I think that's pretty amazing. So that's Justin explaining an ancient church service in his first apology. Um, A couple other things about Justin... He wrote a couple of apologies, and again, if you're really interested in seeing more about this, a quick Google search will bring all of this up in terms of English translations of these things, so it's really easy to find. Another uh, really neat document that comes to us from Justin is Justin had a non-Christian Jewish friend whose name was Trypho. And they had a dialogue back and forth from the Old Testament about whether or not Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. And it's really interesting to see a Christian engaging in that kind of evangelism. And it was very irenic, very respectful, and 
What's fascinating about it is many of the same passages that you and I would look at from the Old Testament in terms of demonstrating that Jesus is the Christ, Justin was using those same passages all the way back in the middle of the 100s as he's having this conversation with this man named Trypho. Well, Justin moved to Rome, and in Rome he started a training school, and in that training school, as he gained some notoriety in the city, he came into contact with a cynic philosopher named Crescens, and they had a big debate, and Justin won the debate. And Crescens was so angered and humiliated that he reported Justin to the authorities. And maybe I'll just make one other comment here to help orient you a little bit. I don't like to mention movies when I'm at church, but this might be helpful. If you've seen the movie Gladiator, I'm not recommending it. I'm just assuming most of you have. The emperor in the movie Gladiator, at least at the beginning of the movie, is Marcus Aurelius. He's this old guy who in the movie is presented as super nice to everybody And nobody can understand why anybody would be mad at him. But in any case, Marcus Aurelius was the emperor when Justin was executed. So Marcus Aurelius, as friendly as he appears in Hollywood, was no friend to Christians. And in fact, not that anybody has DVDs anymore or even knows what those are, Um, but if you were ever to watch the bonus footage From the movie Gladiator, the director, Ridley Scott, has a deleted scene. He was actually going to put a deleted scene into the movie of Christians being killed in the Circus Maximus in Rome, and they decided to leave it out. But, okay, I don't know what kind of trouble I'm going to get myself into if I keep talking about movies, so I'm going to stop right there. But just wanted to make church history a little bit more interesting here at this point. Uh, So Crescens, this cynic philosopher, uh, alerted the authorities to what Justin was doing. Justin and some of his students were arrested. They were brought before the Roman governor there in Rome, and they were told that they must offer incense to the emperor and swear allegiance to the emperor, again, an act of worship. And Justin and his fellow students refused to do that. And in keeping with how Rome treated Roman citizens who were considered traitors, Justin was beheaded as a testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's why he is called Justin Martyr. Now I want to talk for just a little bit about the polemical side of things, the polemicists. If Justin Martyr represents the apologists, I want to introduce you to somebody who represents the polemicists. We'll get to him in just a moment. Before we do, I think it's helpful for us to recognize that in the same way that persecution from the outside is promised in the New Testament, so also is the threat of false teaching from the inside. In other words, there is the constant danger of those from within trying to take people into doctrinal error. And you can see this in places like Acts 20. This is Paul with the Ephesian elders at Miletus, where he tells them to be on guard, that there would be those even from among themselves who would rise up and like 
savage wolves would seek to deceive the flock and lead some astray. Uh, you can see it as well in Titus 1.9. In fact, the qualification for elders there uh, includes that they be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to confront those who contradict. And then another passage, Jude chapter 3, probably the most well-known of all, that we must be those who contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down or delivered to the saints. So as you might imagine, from the time of the apostles, there were those in the church that threatened the church in terms of false teaching. In fact, Peter in 2 Peter 3 talks about this. He says, in the same way that there were false prophets who arose among the Old Testament Israelites, so also there will be false teachers who arise among you. And this required then true believers to take biblical truth and then to marshal arguments that reflected that biblical truth that responded specifically to these new errors, these new heresies. And honestly, one of the reasons I think the study of church history is so helpful is that when you see how the early church responded to certain errors and heresies, it helps you know how to respond to those same kinds of errors and heresies. Because the reality is that Satan, as creative as he is, tends to repeat and regurgitate the same kinds of errors, just in slightly different form at different points in history. So we won't talk about the Arian heresy this morning, that'll be next time, but Arius denied the deity of Christ. He was like a fourth century Jehovah's Witness. And if you know how the early church marshaled biblical arguments to defend the deity of Christ against Arius and his false teaching, it helps you when you encounter a Jehovah's Witness or a Muslim or a Unitarian, someone today who would also deny the deity of Christ. So that's another way that church history can be really practical at that level. I just want to talk through a few of the ancient heresies this morning. And uh, I'm glad that you have main service after that because you're going to be like, what'd you learn in uh, Steadfast today? Well, it was all about these heresies and false allegations. And so I'm thankful that Pastor John will set everything straight in the next hour. Uh, the first of these heresies that I want to talk about is Gnosticism, and Gnosticism is probably a term that you've heard about before. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. Gnosticism actually is an umbrella term that included many different groups. Uh, what made these groups, or what these groups had in common, I should say, is the fact that they all claimed or each claimed to have like a secret knowledge that unless you were part of their group, you didn't have that secret knowledge. And that secret knowledge was the way of salvation, which in Gnosticism was not so much about being forgiven from sin and going to heaven. It was about the fact that your spirit was going to be freed from your body, and then your spirit could ascend to higher levels of spiritual existence. It was kind of like New Age mysticism kind of stuff. It was polytheistic and uh, denied 
the truth of the biblical gospels. One of the things that was really unique about Gnosticism, and this was a sort of perversion of Platonic philosophy, it taught that anything material in terms of stuff made up of matter, anything material was evil. So your body is evil. This physical universe is evil. And only the things that are invisible and spiritual are good. So matter is evil and spirit is good. And with that kind of dualism, it came up with all sorts of heretical ideas, including the idea that Jesus didn't actually have a body. Because if a body is evil, then Jesus shouldn't have a body. He just had like the appearance of a body. But obviously that's a problem because if Jesus didn't have a body, then he didn't actually take on human flesh. He didn't actually die on a cross. He wasn't actually bodily risen from the grave, and he can't actually be the mediator between God and man. So when you read through 1 John, and 1 John, the Apostle John keeps saying the spirit of Antichrist denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, he's talking about a form of Gnosticism that denied the humanity of Jesus. Now, on week one, when I was talking about my mall map of church history, uh, we also talked about the fact that there are these doctrinal pillars that define the true, true, the true church throughout all of church history. Those doctrinal pillars would be a right view of the Savior, meaning a right view of who God is, a right view of Scripture, meaning that you're submitted to Scripture as your highest authority, and a right view of salvation, that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ apart from works, okay? Savior, Scripture, salvation. I mention those because I want to show you just how false teaching, false teaching always gets those three things wrong. So Gnosticism, did it have a right view of God? Absolutely not. Gnosticism taught that there was a pantheon of gods And in fact, that new deities were created because these gods would pair up and create new deities. In that sense, Mormonism is very Gnostic. What the Mormons teach about God, a a polytheistic God, that Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother have begotten more uh, divine beings and that Heavenly Father is just one of many, many gods, that's straight out of the Gnostic playbook. So again, Satan is not very creative. He just regurgitates false teaching. Secondly, the scriptures, the Gnostics completely rejected the biblical scriptures and created their own Gnostic gospels where they came up with all sorts of false stories about what Jesus said and did. And just so you know, the biblical gospels were all written within 50 years of Jesus' life and death. So Jesus' uh, resurrection, death, probably around the year A.D. 30, and uh, maybe 60 years. By, by at least the 80s or 90s, the Apostle John had completed his gospel, and the other three gospels were all written much earlier than that. The Gnostic gospels, by contrast, are all mid to late 2nd century or later. The earliest of the Gnostic gospels is one called the Gospel of Thomas, The Gospel of Thomas is not actually a gospel. It's not a story. It's just a random collection of things that the Gnostics said Jesus said. And the irony is that some of it is quotes from the biblical gospels, but other things in it are clearly not things that Jesus said. 
So the Gnostic Gospels should not be something that causes you any alarm as a Christian. They were all written again at least 100, most of them two to 300 years after the life of Christ, and they're all clearly made-up stories to try and make Jesus sound Gnostic. And then number three, when it came to salvation, it was not about salvation from sin and life on a new heavens or life on a new earth, new heavens and a new earth for all of eternity as scripture talks about salvation. It was instead the escape of your spirit from your, the prison of your physical body, which then ascends to a higher level of spiritual existence. So that's the Gnostics. A second group that I want to talk about is Marcion, and you'll see I have the same structure there. Marcion was a Gnostic. He lived in the middle of the second century, but Marcion's Gnosticism was unique because Marcion tried very much to pit the God of the New Testament against the God of the Old Testament. And in that sense, I don't know how familiar you are or even if these names... (laughs) Are, are still names that are circulating in the internet. But guys like Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens, the new atheism, it was popular about 10 years ago and it's not so popular anymore and I'm glad about that. But Richard Dawkins likes to talk about how the God of the New Testament is incompatible with the God of the Old Testament. Well, that's straight out of Marcion's playbook. And Marcion taught that because he was Gnostic. And Gnostics, Gnosticism says that this physical universe is evil. And so Marcion said the God who created this physical universe must be evil, which is a horribly wrong conclusion. But in order to defend that, he rejected the entire Old Testament and he rejected almost all of the New Testament. He said, well, I accept part of the Gospel of Luke and I accept some of Paul's epistles. And then in terms of salvation, it was a Gnostic view of spiritual ascension. So obviously very wrong. The reason I think mentioning Marcion is important is because the true church, genuine believers, they had to respond to these kinds of false teachings. And so when Marcion says, I reject the Old Testament and I reject the writings of anyone except for Paul, and even then I don't accept all of his epistles, the true church began saying, hey, we have always recognized all of the writings of the apostles as being inspired and authoritative scripture. Now we're having somebody denying that. And so the true church began to say, we should create lists that actually articulate what we have always known to be true And that is that the writings that come from the apostles are authoritative and belong in the canon. And so there's actually the first sort of formal recognition of the canon is in response to Marcion around the year 202, what's called the anti-Marcionite canon. It's part of a fragment of manuscript evidence from archaeology called the Muratorian Fragment. You'll never remember that, but that's okay. I just want you to know that the the reason Christians are responding to these things is because the attack is very real and very imminent in terms of the threat. All right, another M is monarchianism or monarchism. So the word monarch, arche, means ruler, 
Mono means one. So monarch is one ruler. Monarchianism is a label that's given to an attack on the Trinity. It's an effort to claim that there cannot be three persons in the Trinity. There can only be one person. So it's a unipersonal denial of the Trinity. This would be what today we would call Unitarianism. And monarchianism took two forms. There was adoptionism, which was the idea that the father adopted Jesus as his son, either at his baptism or at his ascension. But the more popular form, and the one that still exists today, was called modalism. Modalism was the idea that God sometimes is the father, especially in the Old Testament. Sometimes he's the son, especially in the Gospels, and sometimes he's the Holy Spirit, especially in the church age. But he's never all three at once. That's modalism. Uh, There is, even today, a group of Pentecostals called Oneness Pentecostals. Sometimes it's called the Jesus Only Movement. Last I saw, there was about 25 million in this uh, group in the U.S., Uh, guys like T.D. Jakes is one of their most well-known preachers, but it's a denial of the Trinity based on modalism. Now, the problem with modalism is that it doesn't make any biblical sense, right? You look at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. One event, and who's present? Well, the Son, and a voice from heaven from the Father, and the Spirit descending like a dove. All three members of the Trinity all simultaneously present at one moment in time. Modalism cannot explain that. Who is Jesus praying to in the Garden of Gethsemane? Not to himself. So modalism has no ability to explain the actual reality of what is described on the pages of Scripture, and yet it still persists today as an error in the world. All right, and then just one more that I'm going to mention Again, you didn't come to church today to learn all about false teaching. (laughs) But one more that I'm going to mention is called Montanism. Montanism was the early church's version of the charismatic movement. There was a guy named Montanus, this is at the end of the second century, so the late 100s, who claimed that he, along with two prophetesses that he had, Maximilla and Priscilla, he claimed that he was receiving new revelation from the Holy Spirit for the church. And in the end, uh, the church determined, and I think rightly so, that Montanus was a heretic. He was a false teacher, and his movement was condemned as heretical. And there's a few reasons why, and I've derived these reasons from Nick Needham's book, 2,000 Years of Christ's Power, which is my favorite overview of the history of the church. But he says the reason Montanism was denounced was because the church was suspicious of the ecstatic behavior and extreme asceticism of the Montanists. Number two, by declaring himself to be the mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit, Montanus elevated himself to a position of authority that challenged the authority of Scripture. Number three, many of the predictive prophecies made by the Montanists did not come to pass. They kept saying stuff was going to happen, and it didn't happen. 
Number four, Montanus prophets were seemingly taken over or possessed by the spirit through which they prophesied. They no longer exercised self-control. Number five, the Montanus condemned any Christian as being carnal who refused to accept their prophecies. And number six, some Montanists embraced modalism. Now, the reason I wanted to read those six reasons why the early church rejected Montanism is because all six of those things are still true of the modern charismatic movement. And in the same way that the early church rejected Montanism as a false movement, Christians today should be very, very, very suspicious of the modern charismatic movement to the point of rejecting it because it's based on something that's not true. Okay, well, probably enough said on that. But I just think it's so interesting that the... Let me say it this way. I think part of the reason that the modern charismatic movement has gained a foothold starting in 1901 when Charles Parham and Agnes Osmond started speaking in tongues and gave birth to the modern Pentecostal first wave... I think the reason the modern church has been so accepting of the charismatic movement is because most modern evangelicals don't know their history, and so they've forgotten that the church already did this and rejected it. And so ignorance of history sometimes leads to the mistakes of history being repeated, and the modern charismatic movement is an example of that. All right. So I said I would introduce you to at least one of these polemical church fathers who was standing firm against against, uh, these false teachings, and that's Irenaeus. Irenaeus of Lyon uh, ministered in modern-day France, Lyon, France, and he actually wrote a five-volume work called Against Heresies, he was primarily aiming at the Gnostics, and in particular, a group of Gnostics that were led by a guy named Valentinus, so the Valentinian Gnostics. But he demonstrates that the Gnostics are false teachers because what they are teaching does not accord with the Scriptures. And then he talks about how the Scriptures are the ground and pillar of the faith. And Irenaeus was martyred in Lyon around the year 202. All right, well, I'm looking at the clock and I'm realizing that we have three minutes left. And I've already kept you over one minute at some point in the past. And I don't want to repeat that egregious offense because I don't want you to brand me as a heretic or a false teacher. (laughs) So let me summarize this and land the plane. Apologetics, defending the church from outside attack. Polemics, contending for the faith and being vigilant, given the reality that false teachers present a constant threat. I find the study of church history encouraging in this regard because we are always having to defend the faith to those who ask for an account of the hope that is in us. And these same errors, whether it's the Gnostic flavor of Mormonism or whether it's the Marcionite flavor of the new atheists 
or whether it is the modalism that we see even in the oneness Pentecostal movement or the broader charismatic movement itself and, and later heresies like Arianism with Jehovah's Witnesses. We have to be those who contend earnestly for the faith because we recognize, even as Jude says at the end of that very same epistle, that to deliver one from error is to save his soul and snatch him like a brand from the burning. When we study church history, we see that faithful Christians have been using biblical truth to defend the faith and to contend earnestly for it from the very beginning. And, you know, I think of what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, we are called to watch our life and doctrine closely. And when we see them being faithful in the past, it motivates us to do that in the present. All right, I didn't quite get through all my PowerPoint. That's okay. Uh, the slides are actually on that website, forerunnersofthefaith.com. I've mentioned that before, so if you want to see the rest of them there, you can find them there. I would rather just leave off at this point and make sure that we end on time. So let me pray for us, and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We think of what Jesus said in John 17, that your word is truth. And Lord, we pray that we would be sanctified in that truth, that we would guard our minds by that truth, so that we would be always ready to make a defense and so that also we would not be swept away by the error of unprincipled men who seek to deceive and to mislead. Father, today we've looked more at the negative side of false accusations and false teachings. I pray that our hearts would be reinvigorated to stand firmly on the truth of your word because it is only the truth of your word that can defend and also contend. So may we be faithful to be Bereans, students of the scriptures, so that we might be guarded in the truth of your word through the power of your Holy Spirit, and all of this to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.